Welcome to episode three of Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. I'm Adrian Sykes, and I've spent over three decades in the music business, working with record companies as well as award-winning artists and managers. Today we're joined by Faye Hoyt, Senior Director of Marketing at EMI Records, and one of the most successful women currently working in the industry today. Here's what Faye had to say when I asked her why she chose the music industry. To be honest, I don't know what else it would have ever been. I just knew from a really young age that music was going to be a big part of my life. I can't even tell you of another job that I wanted to do. And I didn't actually know what jobs there were in the industry, but I knew I wanted to be part of it and I wanted to be behind the scenes. And I probably knew that from around the age 15, 16. But, you know, I grew up around music as, you know, many of us did, you know, coming from a Caribbean background, my mum and dad would always be playing music in the house. So it was everything from Lovers Rock to reggae, dancehall, soca, Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston. So, yeah, it was always a big part of of our household. I'm really interested in the fact that you knew at 15 that you wanted to be a part of the music industry when a lot of people don't even realise there's a career they can have in the music industry at that age. So how did you come to that realisation? That first of all, that you wanted to do that. And secondly, you knew that there was a route for you to do that. So when I was at school, as, you know, most teenagers in secondary school girls, you know, we we all love music and we all used to sing songs that we liked, you know, pretend we were SWV, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I loved doing that, but, and, you know, I could hold a note, but I couldn't sing. And I always just remember being like, what else could I do? I would organise lunchtime events at school. So this is when I was about 14, 15. Um, so basically at lunchtime, we'd hold a free concert in our assembly hall. And I think it was off the back of that, just organising that and arranging all of the music and telling everybody what they what songs to sing and when to sing and being quite bossy. <laughs> <laughs> that I was like, oh, this is good. Oh, I could do this as a career. Is, this, is there a career like this? Um, and I guess it was that that kind of sparked it. When I was 16, I did say to a careers advisor that I wanted to be a product manager. So I did know what that word was, but I don't know. I can't remember why I knew what it was. But it was funny because when I when I told the careers advisor this, and I can't remember, I honestly can't remember if it was a man or a woman now, but I just remember I sat in front of this careers advisor because it was the conversations you have before you go to university. And he or she said to me, oh, um, well, that's not realistic. Do you have any other options? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, no, I don't actually. That's my only option. And and I guess I just really stuck to it. It was like, I want to do this. And so that was my plan. And then I went to uni and did a music degree at um, Westminster, you know, learned a lot more about the music industry, majored in business. You could also major in um, performance and production, but obviously I chose business. Off the back of that, yeah, I felt like, you know, that was that was where I was going. It was funny because there were still bumps along the way because even the, the the guy at the time who ran our course, whose name I won't mention, <laughs> I had to quite catch up with him, I think maybe in my second year, and told him that I wanted to work in marketing at a record company. Because obviously by then I'd done enough of the the course to really understand, you know, the different elements of, of majors. And I think at that time it was like, 
we were learning about the big five, which then became four. And then, right, you yeah. know, yeah, <laughs> this is a while back. And he actually turned around to me and said, well, you're on the wrong course if you want to do that. You should have done a course in marketing. <laughs> I was like, hang on a second. I'm doing a music business course. And you're telling me that I can't now go and get a job in marketing in a record company. He was like, no, you can't. You're, you should have done a degree in marketing. And I don't know, even though that was really soul destroying, I just, I guess it put a fire in my belly. So how much do you think that degree has helped inform what you do now? Should you have done the marketing degree? No, I don't think so. Because to be honest, when I did eventually get into the music industry, I can't really think of anyone who um, did a degree in in marketing. You know, most people are like, oh, I did a degree in English or I did a degree in philosophy. And so to be honest, I don't know if that necessarily affects your journey if you want it bad enough. I think I'm happy I did that course because I learned loads. And it meant that when I did join my first role as an intern um, at Ministry of Sound, I had an, a real idea of what was going on as opposed to just being the, the, you know in there and having to figure everything out from scratch. When there were certain conversations happening in meetings, I had an understanding. Also, I got um, an interview for the, the job because somebody who was in my year at uni, who then ended up, we ended up graduating at different times, but he was a marketing assistant at Ministry of Sound. And I sent him my CV and he said, come in for an interview. And I met the team and then I got the internship. So I guess knowing him from the course really helped. And, you know, the course was pretty hands-on. There were there were a number of um, of our lecturers who were actually from the music industry. We were learning from people who had experience. I know that sometimes with these courses, it, it feels a bit like you're just, you know, just reading from a book and, and it's not real. But it did actually feel like we were in the music business. You talk about Ministry of Sound, but we need to go back a little bit, I think. So what was your real entry point into the music business? So, yeah, so I joined the East West Street team. I can't remember how I found out about it, but it, it must have been via uni because that was the other thing. We did get information, like, in our pigeonholes, you know, because of the course we were on. And so it must have come via, the, via that route. So I applied to be on the street team. And I had a friend who was on the Arista Street team. So I was I was aware of you know how they worked and it was something that I was really keen to do. So I was excited that an opportunity had come up. What was great about this street team was was that they were it was heavily female. I think it was like a 70-30 skew. And yeah, I met some great people when I was on that team. So Mel Rudder, Laura Lucans, she was also on the street team. She was on the um Manchester arm. It was a great entry point because you're coming in. At street level, you know, it was the music I loved. You know, it was the US black music predominantly. Um, and we were basically like mini hype people. We would we would go to clubs and to events and to award ceremonies um, and basically hand out free stuff. <laughs> so, Is that what they call living the dream folks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, sometimes we'd have to hold up those signposts, which wasn't fun. But, you, but the funny thing was you would get paid more if you did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we were kitted out in merch, you know, and, and you know, I think real good memories of that were there was this event that we put on for Missy Elliott for her, the launch of her single for One Minute Man. And it was at Iron Bar. Do you remember Iron Bar? Yeah, yeah, I remember it. 
Yeah. Funny, because like, I remember in the early days, that was always like, I was it was such a proud moment for me. It was always on my CV. It was like, I organised the One Minute Man um, launch party at, um, at Iron Bar. And actually, obviously, now when I look back, I didn't actually organise it because there were probably loads of people at the label who were heavily involved. But but my part of it felt, I was so proud of the part that I played in in, you know, that event, which was, you know, on the day, just the little bits I did, at the venue and you know and, and but I was just like this like teenager who was like oh my god I'm organizing an event and um felt very proud so was that the point you really believed that you could have a career in the business so that you could see a way forward I guess so clearly that's the reality where the idea of becoming a product manager at 16 you've hosted your own events you've gone to uni you've battled against your course manager telling you you can't do it and suddenly you're there in the mix I'd like to think that'd be a moment where you think this could actually happen. Once you've gone through the street team and you've been a part of that, what was your next break? Actually, I had probably a six to 12 month period where I wasn't doing anything really music related. I actually finished uni and then worked in with Selfridge on Oxford Street. And I got pretty comfortable doing that, actually. And then it was my boyfriend at the time who was just like, what are you doing? You should be trying to get an internship somewhere. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I should be, shouldn't I? And that's when I reached out to Max Laurie, who was um, the, the guy who was on my course and he was at ministry, reached out to him to see if there was anything going at ministry. And that's when I got the internship. So as a woman making your way through the business and as a woman of colour, how did you think the business reflected you as a person? Were there any women that you saw that you that you looked at that you held up as an example uh, and as and as an inspiration for your journey going forward? Yeah, it was funny because when I first started, when well, I when I say started, I, I, I guess that would be the street team into ministry. The only the there wasn't really anyone who looked like me who was senior that I could that I could see anyway. And being a ministry, we were a bit of an island, so I wasn't really familiar with the major label people and, you know, because we just didn't mix. Like it was like, there were the majors and then there was ministry, you know, we were very, very, obviously we weren't on High Street Ken, we were in Elephant and Castle. And so my pool of peers or or people I could look up to who looked like me was was very limited. But I do remember always being in awe of, of Tappy, who, um, Tapazwana, who I first originally remember from Atlantic, and I think at the time when I first joined the street team, she was on reception, but then quickly moved into the press department. But I always remember thinking, oh my God, there's that black woman at Atlantic. How, and that's amazing. And she's not part of the street team. She works at Atlantic, you know? And it was, that was, so she was probably the, my first memory of somebody looking like me in a record company and me feeling like, wow, okay, I can see myself now in there properly. What were the kind of early pieces of good advice you got from people as you started on your way through the business? Pick my battles. <laughs> <laughs> One that's to be honest, I never used to listen to. I, I never really understood that probably until about eight years ago. <laughs> Does that mean that Faye Hoyt, as I know from personal experience, can be a pretty feisty person? Were you more feisty then back into that, more sure of yourself? Or it was a case of not understanding the business and the way it ran? I just was super passionate and I didn't understand politics because to be honest, at Ministry of Sound, there was only ever one goal and it was to have a hit. And so 
I don't really ever remember there being politics there. It was like, just have a hit, just have a hit. And so we were always all on the same page with everything. And it wasn't until I moved from an independent into the major label system that I first discovered that, you know, don't get me wrong, there's loads and loads of people who um, obviously are there to support the artist and that journey and have as much success as possible for them. But there was this other side where you had to be mindful of having a good idea might offend somebody else or or step on someone's toes. And it was just like, but hang on a second, aren't we just trying to have success? <laughs> Isn't success all our success, you know? And, and, and that was something that I think I really struggled with when I first moved over to the major label system because I'd been so hands-on at Ministry of Sound because obviously it was so small. Um, and so I was across every department. You know, we outsourced radio and TV, but but we were heavily more involved. So like for a TV performance, I would be on set. I would be at like CD UK or wherever, whatever it was, you know, I, and I would be organising, like booking the dancers and there was so much more to do, you know, and then obviously you go to a major and then suddenly like, oh, there's a whole TV department, there's a radio department, there's a press department. And so you have to adapt to that, you know, which now, I mean, I can't imagine not having that to be honest, but at the time it was like, oh, okay, this is different. So I guess, I was always quite forthright and I had to, I guess, tone that down. That makes sense. So back when you started, what were some of the challenges you felt you faced as a minority in the business, not just being black, but as a woman as well? Because the business has never had a great terms of percentage split in terms of black women up until recently. At first, I don't think I, I realised or noticed it. Uh, and it doesn't mean it wasn't a thing, but I guess, like I said before, you know, the, the goal had always just been just have a hit, just have a hit. So, you know, everybody was just like, whoever's, whoever, wherever it's coming from, great, you know? So at what point do you, did you realise that it was a thing? You say you didn't realise then. So what shifted in your thinking? When I think back now, there was a time at EMI. So this is when I was at EMI, when it was a, a, a major record company and I was um, working for Virgin. There was a time there where, and at the time I didn't realise, I, I think I clocked this down the line, where there was an, um, a senior member of staff who just wouldn't acknowledge me, never spoke to me, but spoke to my, my colleagues who all happened to be white. I remember getting into a lift once and she was in the lift with another senior member of staff who I didn't know. I got in and said hello and she looked me in the face and then turned away <laughs> and the person she was with was so embarrassed about what she had just done he who didn't know me started to talk to me and was like hey how are you how's your day going and was really lovely and then funnily enough I featured in this billboard like 30 under 30 piece in um 2010 I believe and suddenly then I was you know, I was her best friend. So how did that make you feel? At first, I thought that it was something to do with my personality as to why she was acting that way. And it wasn't until I reflected on it, like a couple years later, that I realised it wasn't that and that it was probably more to do with my, the colour of my skin. And that was, that was harsh. How do you as a person go through the day having to work in close proximity to a person like that? 
I guess I just got my head down and just did my job, you know, and I was at that point, I was like, I was still relatively junior. I was a marketing manager. You know, I was working on some amazing projects and I was loving life. And I just put it down to her ignorance and I just shut it out, to be honest. The other side of it is that there's always that element of, is that the reason or is it not? Because I think as, as Black people, it's really difficult for us to, to, to know when someone's being funny, like why they're being funny. And it's, it's so easy to jump to that conclusion because a lot of the time it is for that reason. But there are going to be times when it's also innocent. But in this situation, on reflection, I do feel that was the reason why. And also talking to other colleagues about it afterwards and they, and they, and they thought so as well. So let's get back to you and the business and your break. So Ministry of Families is obviously your training ground. Tell us about your path from ministry and how you got your next big break and where that led you. So, yeah, so I joined ministry, gosh, I can't remember what year, 2003, as an intern, as I'd mentioned. And yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy because I was, you know, I'd been raving there. I'd been, to, I used to go to Smooth and then suddenly I was working there and, um, you know, the, the, the office is in the same place as the club or was. So you're literally going to the club every day, which is hilarious. Yeah. And I remember like when I first joined, I worked on the, the Eric Prids call on me, yeah. aerobics, class, aerobics video. <laughs> you didn't do the video. You weren't responsible for that, were you? No, no, no. I was the assistant. Okay, I was just assistant. <laughs> I was just like stuffing CDs and stuff like that. But like, I remember at the time just watching, it was Max Laurie, who was, who was the junior product manager on it. And I just remember at the time, like just watching everything he was doing and, you know, and seeing how it was building. And obviously this this was back in the day before On Air On Sale. So, you know, the song had gone to TV, had gone to radio and, and you know, it was building buzz before it was released. And I always remember there was this, the, the, the debate about which CD cover to go with. And like, there was just, it felt like it took days or even weeks just to pick the CD cover. It was hilarious. Then obviously that became such a big record and became, and the video was like, I guess, I mean, it was before YouTube, but it would have been like a huge viral moment. So yeah, that was, you know, that was fun to be a part of. I actually got made official assistant six months in, and then I became a junior product manager, followed into product management. And that's when I got to work on some, you know, my real projects of my own where I started to have my, like, actually see what it was like to work on a campaign that could go into the top 10. And that was pretty brilliant. So I worked on, um, my first ever top 10 single was a song um, by a DJ called um, Tom Novi, producer. Um, and it was called Your Body. And we shot the video in Kingston, Oceana. <laughs> yeah. Ministry was very much like, you know, working a lot of, on kind of faceless dance records. But it also meant that you got to be... Uh, quite creative as well there was obviously kind of a bit of a you know a thing with ministry and, and the kind of videos they made but you know for me it was a great way to learn because you were just so like I said before you know we were so hands-on with everything so you know you were super involved in the commission of a video you were super involved in every step of the budgets of the you know of the who the DOP was you know even now at a major label like you know, I don't get involved in that. Whereas there, I was like, who's a DOP? I was going to say, we should say for those that don't know what a DOP is, what is a DOP? So uh, the DOP is um, a director of photography who basically is 
the person who likes your video, effectively, basically. They sometimes also double up as the cameraman, um, but often you will find that they have a, a cameraman and they are basically directing the cameras. So from Ministry of Sound, you're successful, you've, you've earned the promotion, you've, you're having top 10 hits. What happens then? So actually, I should mention, so when I was at Ministry of Sound, Alec Botang actually joined probably a year and a half into me being there. Um, and he set up, they set up Smooth Records. So I worked with him on um, a number of releases, including um, SLK, Hype Hype, um, <laughs> which tune. was the big, yeah, I think that was the first song that we, we we actually put out together. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was, I mean, there was lots of memories around that, you know, it was around the time, like there was, there was SLK, there was, there was Kano, was, was bubbling and um, Lethal Beats, Pal, the first original version was, had just been a hit, you know, and so it was an exciting time for UK black music, you know, and, and it was, it was really like nice to be part of that, you know, and, you know, SLK was, was, you know, our kind of like Ministry of Sound trying to move into that area and obviously bringing Alec in was a big part of that. So Alec obviously was also, as well, not obviously, because most people might not know, but Alec also is Twin B um, from One Extra, um, who's just recently left One Extra, actually. But um, he he moved on to set up his own company, Levels, um, with the late, great Richard Antwi, God rest his soul. And he actually approached me with news that Shabs and Glynn were now running Virgin and were looking for a marketing person. I didn't know Shabs and Glynn, but I knew who they were. And obviously for me, it was like, oh my God, Soul Solid Cruise videos for 21 seconds. That's the, they're the people who made that video. So it was all like, you know, in awe of them. So yeah, he he basically said to me, look, they're looking for a marketing person. They've asked me, I've recommended you. So would you like to meet them? And I was like, yeah. And the thing is, it was like, I was, I loved working at ministry, but I was definitely ready for the next step. I'd been there for six years, six and a half years. And I felt like I'd done everything I could do there. And I I really was keen to kind of break into working on artists projects, not just one-off singles. I did have a taste of that with, with Booty Love, who were a dance collective who used to be um, part of Big Brothers, the two girls. Um, and, and I, and even just that experience alone had just gave me a taste, you know, and I was like, yeah, I want to do more of this, you know? So when, when Alec, um, brought it up, I obviously jumped at the chance. So I met, it was when I met Glyn. Yeah. I think I met him in a pub, like in Soho or something. And yeah, I'd never met him before. We just had a good old chat. I think we were there for about an hour and it went really well. It, yeah. It went really well. Then he was like, I want you to meet Shabs. And then I met Shabs and I went to the media vi- village office that was I don't know if it's still there it was um again it was in Soho right it was it was a Wardour Street Wardour Street yeah yeah Yeah, so I met Shabs at that office had a really good chat with him again I was just like in awe and then it happened really quickly I think it was like literally like a month later I was there because like I think at that point I had a month's notice period they offered me the job I went into EMI I, I I did you know got all the paperwork and then then I was like yeah moving and it was it was weird. it was surreal because obviously when you've been at a company for such a long time it was the first place I'd ever worked I couldn't imagine ever leaving well I, I wanted to leave obviously but it's still that weird feeling of stepping into the unknown and also the other thing was that um EMI was going through that weird terra firma period 
So there was a lot of negative stuff in the press, in the music press about EMI and the future of EMI. So there was this this niggle in the back of my head that was like, is this the right thing to do? Because I know it's like a major label, but I'm in a job that where I'm secure and I can do this job and I'm respected. And am I going to leave that for somewhere that might fold? And I think that was always in the back of my mind. And it was my sister-in-law who actually was like, you've just got to be brave. Fortune favours the brave, I think is the term she, she used. And I was like, you're right. One of the things that we really should ask that a lot of people may not know is what a marketing manager or a product manager actually does. The best way to describe the role, instead of calling it a marketing manager role or product manager role, is to think of it like a campaign manager, because you're pretty much like leading the whole campaign from very beginning to the end. And so you know, from, from the moment an artist is signed or even beforehand, it normally it normally starts with an A&R person will sign the artist, introduce the marketing person to the management and artist. And that's normally, you know, that's normally the, the next person you, you that you'll have a relationship with. And then from that moment, you then start to help that artist, like, realise their dream. So, you're involved in, you know, the initial conversations of like listening to music and where they see themselves. Do they have a vision for artwork? Do they have a vision for visuals? So all that early kind of initial creative brief is something that a, a marketing person would be involved in, depending on where you work. And this really differs between companies. You may have a, a creative team who who help you with that, um, but not every company has that. So you know, a, a marketing manager can can be super, super involved or kind of overseeing, you know, it, it does vary. Someone once described the, the role, and I'm not sure how I feel about this sometimes, but th- there is some sense to it as like a bit like air traffic control, <laughs> like where you're like, and I kind of get where that comes from because you are literally like, okay, that person who's like the central hub who has to basically guide everybody um, and keep them like in the loop and communicate. And, you know, you're the person who kind of everybody comes to with the questions on what's happening, I guess, essentially. There's the real basic marketing side of it, which I always say now is just such a small, small part of it, like where people think, oh, a marketing person does TV ads and does outdoor and does, you know, puts up posters. And yes, that is, a part of the job but it's really like not even 20% really you know there's so much more that comes before any of that um it's about being a hype person on the floor you know it's about making sure that that the the artist you're representing is a priority it's about thinking about overarching strategy it's about thinking about what songs should come when, you know, it's like, and that's not, not always an easy conversation because, you know, sometimes artists have a vision of what, of how they see things rolling, but you have to always, and I always, I always say to artists, if I don't give you my honest opinion, then, and I just, and I just allow you to do something that I don't agree with, then I'm not being a good Marketing, marketing person. person, I have to give you my view as well. If you then decide that 
that's you don't want to do that that's fine you know but at least at least hear me out you know I think that's really important anyone who just goes yeah that's great do what you want all the time I'm always a bit like "Mm." Um, I can testify to the fact Faye that you always have an opinion (laughs) and it's always worth listening to oh thank you tell us about some of the more successful campaigns you've worked on the ones that have given you your proudest moments in your career I would have to say the campaign I'm the most proud to be part of was the Emily Standay first album campaign, which I was I worked on alongside you, Adrian. Bless you, Faith. Thank you. And you were um you were amazing, I have to say. Without you, it wouldn't have happened. There was it was a great team and you were an amazing cog in that machine. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. So thank you, Faith. <laughs> no, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And and that was the first time I'd worked on, I guess, what you would call breaking an act. Yeah. So that was the artist breakthrough. And I always say that, you know, I feel like my career has gone where it's gone because I worked on on that campaign. So I'll always be really, you know, and you know, Emily is, is such an amazing talent and, and we all we all felt it from the from the very first time we heard Daddy and knew that she was special. So to be part of that and and to to know that, you know, yourself and, and Emily and and others actually appreciated my input on it is just yeah that's priceless so you featured in the billboard 30 under 30 how important was that for your career and what did it mean for you at that time did it give you impetus set you back did the profile hurt you did you feel under more pressure when it happened I was in shock I got an email from billboard and they were like you're can we just can you just confirm how old you are your date of birth and I was like what I was so confused and I was like, why? And they were like, oh, because um, we're just finalising 30 under 30 and you and we want to include you, but we just need to confirm that you're under 30. So I was like, oh. So then I obviously responded with my date of birth and, you know, and they came back and I'm like, great. So you're, yeah, you, congratulations. <laughs> I was so confused. I was like, where has this come from? I was so, so confused. And so it was a very, I thought someone was playing a joke on me. Then it turned out that my boss at the time, Sarah Sherry at Virgin, had put me forward for it, which was amazing. I had no idea. It was funny because I actually was in Barbados on holiday when it when it was published. So I wasn't in in I wasn't in the UK. And I just remember just because as you do, you know, you check your emails. And um I just remember there were all these like emails from colleagues being like, oh my God, oh my God, congratulations, which was like so lovely. And it was probably before really social media was a thing. And, and like, I mean, to be honest, even now I'm not really a social media person. I'm I'm pretty private and I'm not very good at it. I'm on there because I need to see what's going on and obviously, but I don't really post. Like, you know, like now when things are announced like that, it's like this big thing. I don't remember it being like that. I do remember getting lots and lots of like, you know, actual personal messages and people talking to me about it and calling me up and which was lovely. And definitely people knew about it and were aware, but it never felt to me like an event, if that makes sense. I was I was really proud and I was really happy and I remember my mum was really happy and you know she wanted it framed because it was you know there was the, the, it was the magazine you know made sure she got a copy and and my you know I remember all my cousins in the Caribbean had, knew about it I didn't, half of these cousins I didn't even know <laughs> but they 
they all knew about it, you know? It was like, oh, yes, I'm your cousin. And that's it. I was getting messages on Facebook from all these cousins. <laughs> it was hilarious. But yeah, I don't think it, I, I don't know. To be honest, I honestly don't know if it, if it, it definitely didn't hinder me, but I don't know if it, also, if it helped either. It was, it's, I feel like the Emily Sande campaign was the thing that really was the tipping point for me. It was great awareness, obviously. So interesting enough, you said back in the earlier part of the conversation that it was a point where you felt that being a woman and being being black held you back. How does that fit in, in the narrative of your career or does it fit in the narrative of your career at EMI and then your move on to Sony later on down the line? Is Was that a factor? I don't think I really felt the being held back until I got to a more senior level. And that's when I really felt it. And maybe because I couldn't see people who looked like me, you know, because they, they, they became a period when you go into the major label system that there are more black people. So, you know, it's not like being at ministry where there was literally like me and Alec, <laughs> you know, it was really? like there were more of us. And I actually was progressing, you know, I, I feel like in those, you know, that ministry to, to, to Virgin, to Sony, there were really good steps, you know, they were, you know, I was continuously progressing and up until that point as well, all the jobs that I'd, that I'd gone into, I'd been approached for those jobs as well. So somebody was out there was going, oh, she's good. You know, I was being recommended or, you know, I never applied basically. I never had to apply for a job. So that was, it always felt great. And I think it was when I got to like a senior marketing level that that's when I realised that that next step up was going to be difficult from senior marketing into like a head of director um, position. And that's when it felt like, oh, okay, this is where it gets hard. And because I do feel like it's, to some degree, you will get those promotions to that level. And then it's but then obviously that next level up is where the roles, are, there's a lot less of those roles. So it becomes a lot more competitive as well. So do you think that gender and ethnicity plays a part in that? Well, it's funny you should say that because what I was going to say next was that what I realised was that there were then suddenly colleagues of mine who were white or male who were getting those roles and I wasn't. And that's when I was like, hmm, interesting. And I couldn't see what there, what difference there necessarily was in what I had achieved versus what they had achieved. And so that was when I, and only difference was that I was a black woman. So that was, that was quite hard because, you know, up until that point, I, you know, I'd worked on Emily Sunday and then I worked on One Direction, which was like a company priority globally. And they were the biggest band in the world. You know, it's like, what, what do you need to do? <laughs> um, so that was quite hard. Yeah. To know that that still wasn't enough. From a girl who had a dream of being a product manager to being on the street team, to Ministry of Sound, elevating yourself to a product manager on a multi-platinum campaign, leaving to go and work on the biggest band in the world and coming back to being a senior director of marketing. What are now your personal ambitions? 
And what do you hope for women in the industry? What is your hope for them? To be honest, there was a point where I always thought if I could just get to a, a, a director level, I'd be happy. And it's funny because now I'm there, I'm like, oh, actually, <laughs> you know, so I'm really happy where I am right now. I would, I, I do feel now though that there's so much more and I would love to one day be running a label. You know, I have to be honest. I do, I do see that now as something that I think I could do and that I'd want to do in the future and it's funny because when I talk to like guys about this they're always like women are just so there's all they're just so they're too like reserved about these things because men just jump at the chance at these things there's all these men who jump into these roles and they're not experienced but they don't they'll they'll never say no they just jump in and just figure it out but women always like oh no I need to first master this role before I can step into that role and I definitely yeah I definitely feel that way. Like this, I, I'm I'm loving being at this level and 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 running my own department, having my own team, and you know maybe in the next two or three years, that's when I look at my next step. You know, some people might might say you should be more ambitious and and should be trying to get there sooner, but I guess that's just me being me. <laughs> you know, so but I do see it in my sights, yeah. We know that ethnic minorities are not very well represented in the boardroom and women even less so. How important do you think it is for both people of colour and women to have that voice? And do you think that's the only way to affect meaningful change to ensure there is fair representation of black ethnic minority and women in the positions of power in the business? A hundred percent. It's so important. When I first became a marketing director, I think I was very aware that I was one of the first, or I think I was the first black marketing director in this country, well, definitely female, which is just insane. Don't get me wrong. There were, I, there have been mixed race marketing directors, but you know, I'm not a mixed race woman. I'm a black woman and there'd never been anyone who, who looked like me. Um, and I quickly realised that that also was reflected in how sometimes I was treated, you know. Um, And so I had to be the, I had to change that. I had to go in there and, and, and do a lot of things that, to be taken seriously, that other people didn't have to do, you know. And so I truly believe that, without more of us, it would it wouldn't have changed. And I think I, I I like to think that I helped, you know, start that change. Um and you know, there's obviously some amazing women now coming through who, you know, who are marketing directors as well. Free A Henry Fontaine's just recently been promoted. And um there's another one I don't think I can an- announce. I don't want to announce because I don't think it's actually officially announced. But there's another amazing black woman who's who's coming through. And I just really hope that their journey is a bit easier than mine was. At the end of the interviews, Faye, what we always like to do is do a really quick fire set of questions. So what are your remaining ambitions long-term and short-term? I definitely like want to break some more UK artists. That's super important. Um, I'm working with a bunch of super talented people at the moment. And there's, I, I'm, again, I'm not going to mention names, but I, there's, there's a girl who, who does give me those Emily chills. <laughs> So, you know, being able to, you know, help her on her journey is is super important. So that's a real, that's a really big goal of mine. You know, I, I want to help this new EMI 
you know, this new this new structure at EMI with with, with Rebecca Allen at, at the helm. She's amazing. It's amazing to have a female boss, you know, really be part of this new era um, and shape and help shape shape our label. And what's great is that you know, Rebecca is is giving me that opportunity to be someone who's shaping the label with her. So that's fantastic. And so they're like my, I guess, my kind of mini and short-term goals. And then long-term, I, I like I said earlier, I, I do want to end up in a position where I will be running, running my own label. Do you have any regrets? Nothing that springs out, to be honest. I guess just maybe, maybe I worried too much would be the only thing. I spent a lot of time worrying, but that's just human nature. And who provides you with inspiration? Definitely Glyn, Glyn Aikins, Alec, Alec Botang, of course yourself, Adrian. Thank you. Mel Rudder, Jade Richardson, Tappy. I'm inspired by the next generation as well. Um, so like Afriye and Jackie, um, Rebecca Allen, as you know, inspirational as my boss. She's an amazing woman. Joe Charrington's always been amazing to me and a great mentor. And obviously the artists, you know, there's so much inspiration from them. You know, Emily, if it wasn't, uh, was, I feel like I've, I'm like Emily's fangirl. <laughs> like, yeah, she, she was a, a really early inspiration. And there's so many more people. I feel like I'm going to leave people off and people are going to be upset, you know, but like, no, I get inspiration from all areas, even like in my team, you know, my my team like Benson and 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 Bethany who who are in my team and there were more team members but I'm going to talk about them because they've been with me the longest you know they're amazing they're brilliant and Bethany's like this young black woman who's like just going to go so far she's so fantastic she's been with us for a year and I can already feel like you know I can see I can see her path you know. So I'm, in, uh, she, yeah, I'm inspired by her. And I should ask you, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but what is the proudest moment in your career? Well, it's going to be Emily. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were trying to, to encourage someone to follow your footsteps, how would you persuade them to pursue a career marketing? How, you can, how would you sell it to them? Do you know what? I have, it's, it's funny you say that because... I would say that you've got to give it all. And I know that we live in, I know it's like in this new world, we're supposed to be like, no, you're supposed to have a work-life balance and you're supposed to just, you know, not, not, not overdo it. And, but I'm just like, listen, you want it. You got to, you got to put the hours in. You've got to put the hours in. You've got to prove yourself because there's always going to be someone else who's going to do that. When I first became a junior product manager, I was the first in and last out because I still had to assist three people, but I also had my own projects. So I obviously wanted to make my own projects work, but I also didn't want to upset the people who I assisted. They were still extremely important. And it's and that meant I was doing like, you know, a double shift. So if you were going to give a, a young female entering the business advice now, what would that advice be? That you're good enough. And that is a good enough answer. What's your hope for people of colour in the 21st century music industry? I, I really, really hope that we are more represented. But I also have to say that I think it's so important that we're given opportunities because we, we, because we deserve them and because we've worked for them and not 
and not because, not just to fill a quota. And and when I say that, I'm not talking about the, the, the people who are applying for the jobs. I'm talking about the way that these big organisations have these knee-jerk reactions. And I just think it's so important that when they are employing people, because there are, there are lots of people out there who are good enough. There are. So it's just about making sure that you are employing the people who are right for the role and not trying to tick a box or have an optic because that bubble will burst. Do you know what I mean? I think to sustain this, we need to sustain it with with the right people. And there's so many of them. What do you want Faye Hoyt's legacy to be? Gosh, my legacy. <laughs> that I was a nice person. <laughs> no, that's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> um, gosh, that's a tricky one. What would my legacy be? Is this like me saying, like, oh, this feels, is this a bit morbid? I'm like, is this like, oh, Faye, when she's dead, what are people going to say about me? <laughs> I think we all want to look back on our career at some point and, and kind of point to a moment and go, that was a seminal moment or there were seminal moments or touch or touch points. So what do you see that to be for you? Yeah, I guess um, I would like to be known as somebody who really, really cared and fought for her artists and, and, and what she and what she believed in and, and, and stood by them. Faye Hoyt, Senior Director of Marketing at EMI. Thank you for talking to Did You Know? It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me, Adrian. Appreciate it. The Did You Know Pioneers podcast is a Downstreet production. As always, thank you for listening. We'd like to thank Faye Hoyt for sharing her stories. And as ever, we have to thank all those who make this happen. To Danny D, partner and true pioneer, to Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, Ella Ruby on the socials, and to 320 for our music. As ever, thanks to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW, and to David, Wren, and the team at WX as well for helping spread the word. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Please make sure you look out on our socials. Details are coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you rate and leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode with Tiny Temper, artist, co-founder of the innovative company Disturbing London, and also owner of Imitet Publishing, a true pioneer and entrepreneur. This was Did You Know Pioneers podcast. Until the next time.